they were an unlikely couple with a big idea. Graham Devine and Rob Landeros wanted to make a CD-ROM game at a time when CD-ROM games just didn't exist. They spent weeks putting together a budget, a design document. They pulled the whole concept together and put it on their boss's desk. And for his part, he sat them down and he promptly fired them. And while that would be the end of many stories, it's just simply one step on the long journey to create the seventh guest, which we'll be talking about today. So stick around for today's spooky story on yet another trip down memory card lane. Good afternoon and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 83rd episode of our Video Game Nostalgia Podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we take a look back at one game relevant to the current week in gaming history and we talk about it. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the game, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. This week, we are looking back at The Seventh Guest, released for MS-DOS Computers in April of 1993. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who frequents creepy, old, rundown mansions like this one, my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, you find anything interesting in any of those mansions lately? Uh, not a whole lot. A lot of spiders, a lot of cobweb, a lot of dust. It was very, very dusty in there. And, uh, this one weird creaky floorboard, but it seemed to follow you around the house. Oh, that's I don't know. kind of weird. It's probably way better than any of these seven guests found in their mansion. In fact, it's way better than anything that these seven guests found in their mansion, so you should consider yourself lucky. Yeah, I would definitely say so. So, Dave, what have you been playing this week? Uh, I finally finished Elden Ring after 80-some hours. Ooh, congratulations. How was it? It's good. I enjoy it. I, I, I don't want to play it again. <laughs> now are you ready to take on Dark Souls with me? You know what? Yeah, actually, I've thought a lot about that. I do think that, yes, I will give some of the others a try because I genuinely enjoyed I, I enjoyed Elden Ring. I did. I, you made a proud brother out of me. Uh, you know I'm what glad I, that I got you something you enjoyed so much. You, you know what I like and what I don't like, though? Um, I, you haven't <laughs> you, you haven't finished it yet, so... I also we're not going to give any spoilers away. No, we're not, no, it's still no. too new of a game. We no, got to no, wait no. like ten years. No, Come no, on. this this is not this is not spoiler related. This isn't spoiler related. Um, I really like the world building. I like the difficulty because you get a really good sense of accomplishment. And I understand that it's part of this genre, this game, the way they design, but the story. And the lore is really underwhelming to me. I'm kind of shocked to hear that. And it, it 
look, there's six endings to the game, right? That's just <laughs> just so you know, there's six. As en- you found out, yeah, there's six endings little, to the game, mm-hmm. but four of them are literally just a variation on 30 second videos, and it it really felt like it was kind of a slap in the face after after playing 80 some hours of the game because I enjoyed the world building. I enjoyed the trip, but then the payoff was just like, eh. I feel a lot of the lore comes more from all of the side quests that you do. So if you miss quests, you miss a lot of that lore. You miss finding items that tell more about the world. And I mean, yes, the main story should have some appeal to it, but I feel that with a lot of souls games, they require, they kind of use all of the, areas everything to create the lore it's not just the main story well and that's what i mean it's 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 something that's ingrained in that in in the way he designs his games that's that's he he does that he does that on purpose uh and, and he lets he lets the community make the lore like we find things but we're filling in the gaps as we find things and i i get all that i do i just I don't, I don't know. That was my, and it's, you know what? And it's not that I didn't enjoy it. Um, I did enjoy it. I just, I wanted more of a payoff for all my hard work. Other than, yeah, I, I I can definitely understand that, but Hey, sometimes you get what you get. Well, that's definitely the case here. (laughs) Otherwise what, uh, rocket league, uh, I don't even think I played Valheim last week. We played Forza. So I think it was just Forza Rocket League and. Oh, no, I played Far Cry 6. Last week, we talked about how it was a Far Cry 6 free oh, weekend. Shoot. I forgot. Um, well, I only played two hours of it. I played enough to get through the I played enough to get through the introduction to find out that it was Far Cry and I love Far Cry. So I'm going to love that game. I'm just not ready to buy it and and dig into it yet, but it's it's actually a heck of a lot of fun. You get super weapons in this one, and the first super weapon you get is like a missile backpack that shoots like six guided missiles at the nearest enemies. So you're basically Boba Fett. Oh, it's so cool because like you just you get surrounded and then you're just like Supremo because it's called a Supremo and like everything around you just blows up. It's actually really cool. So, well, I can't I'm not uh, sure how long I'll be able to wait to give that one a try because that does sound fun as hell. It actually it is super fun and I I really enjoy it. Um, Lacey, my wife, enjoyed it, too. She said it, it, it starts off with a bang. She goes, wow, I didn't expect such a violent beginning. But it's Far Cry. They're all kind of like that. So yeah, just a, a little bit. They they they're kind of violent. Yeah. Um. So I did. I enjoyed the uh, maybe four two hours is a bit of exaggeration. I probably played more like four hours. I played it for one evening, and then I just didn't have any other time. Well, I did have time, but I decided that I I didn't want to play further into it because I just I can't I can't do it right now. So understandable. Uh, yeah. How about you? Would you play? Well, this week sucked. A little bit more Yu-Gi-Oh than usual. Um, was with college roommates, so got into playing some with the roommate, and you know he was helping me build decks and things. And you know, uh, shout out to Razor Zenkai. Go check him out; he's a cool dude. Um, he's uh, he's giving me some advice and starting to build, get some pretty nasty builds again. So it's uh, definitely enjoyable there. Obviously, we're killing it in Rocket League, just blowing away everybody because we're yeah, the best we are. there are. Ha ha yep. ha. Um, and then I've been playing a little bit of Trailmakers with Damon. 
So, uh, very fun game. If you don't know what it is, it's basically. No, I was going to ask you what it's Trailmakers. Yeah, it, it's basically uh, like Legos. You build vehicles, and that that's it. You you find if you play the campaign, um, I won't. Basically, you you crash, and your ship scatters all these parts around, and you have to gather the parts. And as you find certain parts, you unlock more pieces to build your vehicles to get more pieces. Um, there is a sandbox mode that you can just get all of the pieces there are and build whatever you want. Um, very cool. It's physics based. Uh, you have jets, uh, wings, tail fins. There's propellers. There's jet engines. Uh, a lot to do. And it's basically in the style of Legos. Um, so for people that are into building stuff and, and getting to drive it around or fly it around and experiment and see what you're, you're, you're into, uh, it's definitely a game I would recommend. And unfortunately, we're not sponsored by them. But hey, Trailmakers, <laughs> I'm looking at you, boys and gals. All yeah. Right. So it's been a fun week of gaming. Awesome. But enough about that. I think we should get into our game. Yeah, let's talk about the seventh guest, shall we? That we shall, Dave. Take her away. You ever do you remember the seventh guest at all? I was not familiar with this until I watched a video recently. This is not something I remembered. I played the hell out of this game when it came out. It was, it's another one of those games that kind of stuck with me. That was like a wow game. And I know I say that all the time because I, I love gaming and I'm in wow gaming all the time, but there are some things that just really stick out. And this was one of the ones that I was kind of addicted to. So, and then nowadays, like you, uh, I remember playing this for hours and, and, and like bumping my head up against it. And then you hit it in modern times and you realize that you can play it from beginning to end in like three hours, which we sit and play Rocket League longer than that on any given Tuesday, you know? Uh, Absolutely. I definitely understand that. It's uh, it's funny the way that works sometimes. But yeah, so, you know, the partnership and company that brought us the seventh guest is probably one of the more unlikely partnerships in gaming. Graham Devine started programming early on. He was about nine years old. And when he was about 16, he was hired by Atari uh, over in Britain to port titles like Pole Position, for instance, to platforms such as the Commodore 64. Uh, In fact, at one point he was expelled for skipping three days in a a row to work on Pole Position and his dad protested, basically saying something to, to the uh, effect of, you know, my son is actually doing something more so than any of these other students. How dare you expel him? And of course, he he was reinstated and able to finish school. I mean, his dad may have figured that pole position was a different type of game altogether. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. Well, by chance, uh, as you know, as, as he was programming, Devine met with another businessman, Rob Alpert, who uh, Rob was hired to head up software developer Virgin Mastertronics in California, of all places. And he asked Graham to head up Virgin's programming department. And so with that, Devine moved from his current location of Britain to California to start programming console titles for Virgin. Nice. Yeah. On the other hand, Rob Landeros was a gifted artist who had spent the 60s in Berkeley, California, 
living in communes and drawing raunchy underground cartoons. He was a self-proclaimed Luddite, meaning he wasn't into technology. He was all about the pen and paper. And so it came as a surprise when in the mid 80s, he was introduced to the Commodore 64. And he is quoted as saying at that moment, completely changed his life. The moment he looked at it, he knew that the future was in computer graphics. And so he devoted his 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 future, his career to work on computer graphics um, and worked at a few places and eventually also ended up working at Virgin Mastertronics. Now, the two hit it off pretty immediately. Uh, you know, Landeros was a kid of the 60s and... Graham was a fan of everything that way. You know, Landeros was about 17 years older than Graham Devine. So there's a big gap between them. But Graham was all into, you know, the comic books, comic books from the 60s. And Landeros had them all the time. So they would bond over comic books and old movies and stuff like that from that time period. They worked initially for Virgin programming licensed titles uh, for instance you know we talked previously about mckids that was a virgin title um so they basically did licensed ports of video games but they were bored with that after a while they they didn't want to work on licensed properties and and both in their own right were eager to do their own thing now this was about the time that cd-roms were starting to become a thing and they both agreed on the fact that they wanted to explore CD technology. And so amongst themselves, they formed their own research and technology department at, at Virgin. As part of this, in 1990, the two visited an intermedia conference. Some 800 or so other developers all attended, all looking to burn their programs onto CD-ROM. But for the most part, the topic wasn't gaming. Everyone was there to talk about how you could store whole libraries on the CD-ROM. I do remember that when the CD-ROMs first came out, one of the most amazing things was suddenly, you know, we we had encyclopedias in the house and there were like shelves. You could have an entire bookcase that had the entire encyclopedia, you know? And then all of a sudden here comes Microsoft Encarta. Microsoft Encarta is that entire bookcase on a single CD-ROM. And it was the coolest fucking thing ever when it happened. I think that's something that we take for granted. Nowadays, it's so cool because we have all that information times a gajillion at our fingertips on the Internet. But, you know, we did that in bits and pieces, you know. Mm -hmm. So at one point at the conference, a question was asked to the attendees, who's going to do video games on CD-ROM? And out of the 800 or so people there, only four hands went up. Two of them were Landeros and Graham Devine. That seems really odd that that's the only few. But I, I guess is, it was a different time. It, the, yeah, I mean, this was this was cutting-edge technology. No one knew what to do with it. But speaking of cutting-edge, those two knew that they were on the cutting-edge, obviously. I mean, four people there want to do games. And so they decided to take what they had learned and bring back a pitch for a CD-ROM project to their boss at Virgin, who was Rob Alpert, who brought Graham Devine over to Virgin. So initially, they had thought about doing a game based on the classic board game Clue. Virgin had just acquired the license to Clue, and it seemed like a logical 
you know, a project for them to do. Now, if that didn't work, both of them at one point toyed with the idea of making a game based on the the David Lynch TV show called Twin Peaks. Do you know Twin Peaks at all? I can't say that I do, Dave. Oh, it's just a it's a really weird show. Do you even know who David Lynch is? No. All right, well, he does really weird out there stuff. I I like him anyways. So they pitched Clue, they pitched a Twin Peaks game to the higher-ups, but no go. There was no interest in either of them. And so for weeks, Landeros and Divine toiled away at another pro- a proposal for their CD-ROM project. Uh, and the, the game at this point, they tentatively called Guest. By now, the concept had changed from the classic board game Clue to that of a haunted house story that would use still pictures and contain puzzles that were modeled after the 80s brain teaser game Fool's Errand. But because CD-ROM was such a new technology, the budget that they projected needing to develop their idea was around $600,000, which was almost triple the budget for any of the cartridge-based projects that Virgin had typically developed at the time. And so one day in 1990, they sat down through the proposal at, you know, Martin Elpert, Rob Elpert, Martin Elpert. I don't remember which at this point. Mr. Elpert had a virgin. And he invited them out to lunch to discuss the proposal with them. He sat right across from the developers and he cut right to the chase. He said, you guys no longer work for virgin. You're fired. You think that was it, right? Um, I'm going to guess not, Dave. Yeah, I'm going to guess not. As you can imagine, this came as quite a shock to the pair, who pretty much had to pick up their jaws from the floor. And really, it was one hell of a delivery from Alpert, who had decided to greenlight their project. But you see, there was really no way that he could allow them to work on such a project in-house, because if they were able to work on such a project, then none of the other artists or developers or anything would want to work on any of what he called the mundane licensed games that were the bread and butter of Virgin's income flow. You know, to Elbert, Graham was the problem solver and Landeros was the artist and he really felt that there was no better pair that could pull off a project like Guest. But there were two requirements that he set for the project. First, he wanted a floppy disk version of the game created and second, he wanted their offices to be within 100 miles of the Virgin headquarters in Irvine, California. Almost immediately, that second rule slipped their minds. You know, at one point, Rob Landeros had lived in Southern Oregon, and he loved the area, and he was drawn back to it. And so he brought Divine back to Southern Oregon, and they loved it too. And so they ended up setting shop there deciding that they wanted to be as far away from the California rat race as possible. They settled on a name, Trilobite, leased the second floor of an 1800s historical brick built building, uh, moved right above a local pub, and moved their families to Jacksonville, Oregon. And there, they got to work. Sounds like quite the adventure. Sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, yeah, it could be. Who knows? So originally their plan was to use a 360 degree degree camera 
to shoot still pictures of a local mansion. It was called the Noonan Mansion. But an alternative quickly fell into their lap. So one of their Virgin co-workers had been a beta tester for a new program called 3D Studio. And he came to them and he showed off one of his projects, which was a 3D living room with a fireplace and a haunted chair that moved around in it. Now, Divine and Landeros were blown away by this little demo, and the mansion quickly changed to become an entirely 3D-rendered house. And frankly, they didn't even know if they could pull it off. Let's remember that this was brand new. No, no, one, no one had made a CD-ROM game. No one was there to teach them how to make a CD-ROM game. They didn't know technologically if they could pull it off at all. They didn't know what the technological limitations of CD-ROM were. And so they made the decision from the get-go to do a black and white mansion, if need be, because they weren't even sure if, if they could stream color, if the CD-ROM was able, able to, to, to do this in color. They found a scriptwriter, an established scriptwriter named Matt Costello, who had fleshed out the game's story. The goal right from the get-go, uh, according to early emails published, was that they all wanted to make a classic horror movie. And lastly, they decided that they wanted to, to make the game as accessible as possible, and so it had to be what they call a single-button game. Now, because of this, there were various puzzles that they had already created that had to be thrown out because they wouldn't work with a single mouse click. And with that, the concept of The Seventh Guest was born. They brought on a famous game musician called the Fat Man to score it, and they moved on to the production. I don't think we've ever talked about the Fat Man before, have we? Uh, I don't recall that name, no. So, the Fat Man, or George Sanger, is an American video game musician. He was hot stuff back then. He composed the music for a, a number, quite a bit of well-known games at the time, including Maniac Mansion, uh, Wing Commander. He did the NES version of Home Alone. He did the music in SimCity 2000. He did the music in the original NASCAR Racing, Zombie Ate My Neighbors. They were just a, a whole bunch of notable games from, from that era. Uh, and, and he actually still works on games here and there. He currently has about 47 or 48 composer credits to his name. Uh, the most recent being a couple of years ago. I mean, he doesn't do any big titles. Like it wouldn't be any triple A titles that you know nowadays. Um, but he's still he's still in there. He's still in there making music and, and working in the industry. Wow. That's a the fat man. Yeah, the fat man. The fat man. Interesting name choice. Hey, we all have our nicknames. True that. So back to the seventh guest, you know, the game concept included the use of full motion video, which basically had them making a mini movie uh, amongst a backdrop of 3D backgrounds. That was the plan. Now for this, they had a $35,000 budget, a super VHS camera, and a roll of blue butcher paper that they use to uh, basically that's your green screen. It could be it can be blue or green for those of you who don't know how chroma key works. 
And so they basically use this the blue butcher paper to chroma key their actors to place them into the game. They filmed the game above a natural food restaurant in Medford, Oregon. And with that, they had all the pieces. They just had to put them all together. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely sounds like it. So in order to do so, Graham had to create what he called the Groovy Game Engine. It was called the Groovy Game Engine. I like it. Groovy Game Engine. And the Groovy Game Engine was basically designed to allow the continuous streaming of data from the CD-ROM. Now, streaming from the CD-ROM was kind of important because hard drives at the time were the same size or smaller than a CD-ROM could hold, believe it or not. And so there was really no way to install video games on hard drives per se. And so it was kind of important to run the game straight off the CD-ROM. And they got it to work, you know, in color, I might add. They didn't end up having to go with black and white. The Seventh Guest was the first graphic graphic adventure to use, get this, Rob, 640 by 320 graphics. Wow, that's high tech. With 256 colors. Ooh, I think that's that's actually a pretty good number. Just to put it in perspective, your phone screen, what's what's the phone screen nowadays? I have no um, idea. What do we use in um I think like the let's see, I have an iPhone eleven and the actual resolution of my screen is eleven twenty-five by twenty-four thirty-six. Yeah, but how many colors? Oh millions. We're past that. We're we're hmm. we're past colors, so but I mean, the resolution, I mean, this was the first game to use that graphics. And now our phones are like three times the density of pixels and then millions upon millions of more colors, you know? I mean, hey, for the time, it was pretty cool. No, it was it was eh, it was very cool. So they made this game and there were a few things that are different from what they originally wanted. First of all. Some of the puzzles that they had originally intended on using were under copyright. And so they ended up turning to 17th century puzzle books to fill in the gaps. Kind of cool. Also, the blue screen footage that they shot wasn't the greatest. I'm imagining that they probably weren't, you know, I mean, well, back at the time, no one really knew green screen. It had left the most actors with this ghostly aura i imagine that they couldn't get rid of the background all the way so it still had tinges of blue around all the footage which they left in of course became a, a feature of the game but all in all guest became the seventh guest and it was released to the world in april of 1993 so rob you said you watched a video right uh, a bit of it yeah watched a bit of the video so Tell tell me what you saw. Tell me about the game. What's the game? It's basically a movie with some puzzles. You know, you're 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 walking through a mansion and the videos tell you the story and sometimes you have to solve some puzzles. Yeah, that's pretty much the game. 
Oh, well, hey, I didn't miss much. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, it definitely seemed interesting. Um, and I get the uh, ambience of the music because, uh, yeah, that was giving me a headache a bit. Oh, yeah. Well, so, yeah, you play the game by walking through a mansion. You solve puzzles and you watch videos that tell the story. As you walk through the mansion, you're harassed by the mansion's owner, Henry Stoff. There are 21 puzzles spread throughout the rooms in the house. They include mazes. There's some chess puzzles. There's some logical deductions. There is a Simon style pattern matching. There's a word manipulation. Uh, everybody hates a really nasty puzzle towards the end that's based on reverse with some nasty AI that plays against you. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of different things that you could play in the game. Every time you finish a puzzle without help by my ad, you get to watch a video that tells part of the story. And I say help because I honestly don't remember this as a kid, but, uh, but as an adult, I found there was actually a hint book in the library of the home. And if you read it twice, it would give you two separate hints about how to beat the puzzle that you were working on. But if you consulted the book a third time, it solved the puzzle for you, but then you no longer get to watch the video afterwards. Oh, interesting. Now the, the, the story is creepy. This is a proper creepy horror story. You basically wake up in a creepy deserted mansion. And as you explore it, you get to see ghostly visions of the past. Now you find out without giving too much away that these visions all take place sometime shortly after the death of a bunch of local children. And they take place during an evening in which six guests were, were invited to the mansion and these six guests arrive. They find it empty save for a number of puzzles that give them instructions, uh, many of which tell them uh, about, you know, hey, wait for a ooh seventh guest. Um, and so the story just kind of plays out from there. I played this. I really enjoyed it. I mean, I know I said that at the top. It is. It was creepy. I, you know, it, it's a it's a good story. Now that I've gotten to see the whole story as an adult, because I couldn't beat the puzzles as a kid. Uh, it's just a good it was a, it's a good game. It's a good game that I feel holds up well if you're into this genre. Problem is, is this genre is not for everybody. There's not a lot of people that still want to play adventure games. But what we'll talk about very shortly we're going to touch on reviews right now but we'll come back to its legacy is that this was a booming genre at the time that's it this was a booming genre at the time so that's the game that's how i felt about it loved it rob you said the music gave you a headache though you know maybe it was just when i was watching it but it was just really that all the high pitch noises and it you know it just it got it got a little irritating if after a while and i just couldn't finish like that's that was mostly why i had to stop um that's just, all right but yeah i mean i'm sure it was great at the time like when you don't have other stuff but like i said maybe i was already having a headache and it just added to it i don't know um probably could have done it without sound but i don't feel i'd have the same uh no that that yeah that, you kind of need it yeah you need it for that one well that's kind of how we feel about it rob how did other people feel about it 
Well, for people that could get the game to run, it was a phenomenal game. In Computer Gaming World magazine, it consistently ranked high in reader pools and was clearly a best-selling game. They recommended it to puzzle fans who want to hear and see some of the most exceptional computer graphics and music created to date. However, one reviewer with Computer Gaming Magazine did not have such a great experience with the game. Shocking, I know. (laughs) Although he enjoyed what he called a rich, enjoyable gaming experience, he wrote that the minimum system requirements were very unrealistic and that many players, including himself, encountered various issues with software incompatibility and there were issues with stability as well. In fact, there was an issue with one brand of sound cards that prevented players from hearing the digitized speech properly. You know, I was thinking, you know, after stumbling across this, we're very lucky nowadays. We don't have nearly the same issues with compatibility that we had in the past. Now, don't get me wrong. There still is like issues and bugs and stuff that doesn't make games right. Like when Forza first came out, Rob, you couldn't play it for whatever stupid reason. Yeah, very true. So we're not, we're not out of the woods in terms of that. But back then there weren't really standards for, the way software and hardware work together. So like a sound, so the sound one, um, I can't remember the brand that had the issue, like sound something, but like sound blaster sound cards may work differently than, you know, like a off brand sound card or something like that. And so you would be able to hear sounds with this game on one, but the off brand sound card couldn't understand the sound format. And so that it wouldn't work we just don't have those issues nowadays per se, but it was very prominent back then because in the early there, there really wasn't a PC gaming. There wasn't a PC gaming, like there weren't PC gamers, but there were, does, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, the other part of it too, was that computers were probably built at less of a standard, Compared to nowadays, where a lot of people make things that can all work together, I'm sure that they weren't really doing all that before. And obviously, with more people to program and understand things, and as things get more advanced, there's more people to work on all the stuff that can make it all work. Yeah, but it's more than that, too. And that's that's what I kind of want to point out. People weren't buying computers to play video games. They were buying... I mean, our first... Our first computer that like MS-DOS Windows computer it was a Packard Bell 95 that I remember it was bought for like I don't know you know Microsoft Encarta and Microsoft Word and stuff like that playing the video games was just a, a bonus to it and you know we always talk about I don't ever talk about this but we talk about like the Commodore 64 and we talk about the you know, um, PDPs and the Amigas and everything. People were not buying these things for video games. That was that was an afterthought. They were buying them for productivity and other things like that. And so, like, 
video computers weren't made for video games like these these this game in particular was on the cutting edge it had more colors and it had more resolution and it streamed off a cd-rom drive and computers just weren't made for that and so like a lot of games didn't work or you had to jump through hoops to get it to work i remember when we first got NASCAR racing, the very first version of NASCAR racing simulator. And I was so excited to get it. And our computer couldn't run it right out of the box. I had to like, you had, you could type in like DOS commands to like turn parts of the game off or get them to run in like with lesser memory, with lesser graphics, like the computer, the games didn't automatically do that. Like you had to actually like tell it to do that when you booted it up. And I remember having to jump through all these hoops to even play that game. Um, and, and that was just a thing for people all the time. Uh, you know, so I, I guess the thing is, is if you're listening and your perspective is at the mod that, you know, from the modern gaming perspective, you know, everyday gaming is so prominent that nowadays we kind of make sure games work with everything. But that that was not the case in any stretch by any stretch of the imagination in the beginning of all things. So, yeah. All right. Off my pedestal. Off you are, Dave. So anyway, next up, we have Paul Murphy in Dragon Magazine, who reviewed the Mac version and also had mixed feelings about the game writing that the seventh guest suffers from an incurable case of confusion about what it is trying to be. It's either a collection of puzzles encumbered by an unnecessary horror setting and story, or it's a horror story and setting encumbered by an unnecessary collection of puzzles. That's your opinion, dude. Yeah, I mean, hey, to each their own. Some people like it, some people won't. But, you know, yeah. It is what it is. Well, Dave also managed to find us some interesting reviews of the game once it was ported over to CDI. Which do, you know Dave, do you know what CDI is? What's CDI? Yeah, so if you want to know what CDI is, you're going to have to come back next week because next week uh, we're actually focusing on one of the main titles of the Philips CDI, and I'll be talking about the CDI Um it's it's a console, but it's an infamous console, and we're going to talk about it next week. So, look at you, Dave. Plug in for next week's episode already. Mm-hmm. Well, Dave, you know what that reviewer wrote? What do you have to say about it? Well, here's what they had to say. <laughs> wow, if you've never heard of the seventh guest before, you're in for a shock. The graphics are simply mind blowing with beautifully rendered scenes of the Stauff Mansion. While simply walking along and playing puzzles our various points may seem boring, just fire this puppy up and you'll be hooked. The music adds a creepy side to the game, so I wouldn't suggest playing with the lights off. It's a great game, with no real replay value. 8 out of 10. And... There was another CDI reviewer who had a similar sentiment, writing that I love the spooky sound effects, and the live video is really well done. The graphics are cool, and the load time is faster than on the PC. The only down point is the lack of replay value, but after you beat it, you can't show it off to your friends. Well, how did video gamers like us feel about the game? 
Well, Dave, first, I guess we'll look at Twammer Gable on Moby Games, who calls the seventh guest one of the most memorable experiences of his life. He writes that the game simply blew him away. Smooth, beautiful animations, actual video, and very difficult gameplay. The music was so dramatic and enveloping that they still listen to its soundtrack to this day. On the other hand, some of the puzzles were difficult, and the actors are rather terrible. Still, it is a wonderful experience that they'll never forget. Yeah, it is. It is some pretty bad acting. I'm, I'm not going to take that away from everyone. I mean, hey, you know, you win some, you lose some. It was good without the acting. So, yep, for yeah. Sure. But next up, we have Chris Martin on Moby Games, who remember the seventh guest as creepingly eerie and worth a look. He wrote the seventh guest is a fantastic visual game. The graphics for its time are astounding. A fully rendered 3D house with intricate puzzles and ghost-like actors. It amazes them just walking around in the game how fluid the graphics were. Though they do say that the gameplay. How to sum it up? It was unique. If you are into puzzles, especially in the mathematical puzzle type books, you could probably find all the solutions at your local library. However, some of the puzzles, as mentioned in other reviews, are too darn hard. The actors could have been better, and the plot was decent, but seemed very vague and fractured. Maybe because of the puzzles you chose to solve in the order that they were solved in? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. So next part, me still? Okay. In retrospect, Yakim Kilman writes on Moby Games that he feels that the seventh guest represents almost everything that was bad with the early CD-ROM era. A lot of flash, but no fun. The intro movie had real actors, but man, was it boring. The game itself had a story, also played out by actors, but the story is far from compelling, and the actors suck. Furthermore, the quality of the videos isn't very good. But worst of all, this isn't fun to play. Just walk around in a pre-rendered, but ugly house and solve tedious puzzles. When you solve a puzzle, you're rewarded with one of the terrible video sequences, and off you go to the next boring puzzle. This is just as bad as Myst, and at the time, almost as popular. They're the first to admit, I just don't get it. This is supposed to be a horror game. The only horrific thing about it is the boredom it generates. And of course, the awful and extremely ugly design. Those mid-90s CD-ROM graphics, how do they hate them? In the end, he feels that The Seventh Guest is not a very scary horror game, and not too fun to play either. For some strange reason, it's very popular, and a classic. Yeah. It's funny when you look back at this stuff, because I, I get it, man. Like, yeah. It's a really basic 3D mansion. You know, nowadays you could pull up you know, free video game making software and, and outdo it. And the quality of the film, the the video on it is it's laughable. It really is. It's it's a really it's like a B movie. Let's be honest. It's a B, you know, B horror movie. B movie? A B movie. Do you like jazz? I get it. It it I, I imagine that it's really hard for people to view this game positively through a modern lens. But at the time it was cutting edge, you know, commercially 
the seventh guest was a smashing hit. You know, in its first year, it had sold 450,000 copies and earned back over $15 million. By 95, it had exceeded 1 million copies, and it had actually sold better than Myst, which I think is a game that has more notoriety nowadays. People people know the name Myst way more than they, they know the name Seventh Guest. Can't Although say I know either, Dave. going to say you apparently don't know either, which is really sad to me. Yeah, you know, I'll get around to it. Well, I mean, obviously, I know Seventh Guest now. Right. But I uh, just don't know it in its entirety. By 1998, the game is said to have exceeded $40 million in revenue. You know, Bill Gates called this game, The Seventh Guest, the new standard in interactive entertainment. Oh, wow. And then everybody had to have it. You know, well, that probably had some influence on that. That probably had a little bit of influence. He he was a big deal back then. Nowadays, not so much, but he was a big deal back then. This game, the seventh guest, along with Mist, they are. They basically uh, they're the reasons why people went out and bought CD-ROM drives for their computers. There, there's no ands, ifs, and but it's but but it's. There's no ands, ifs, and buts about it. But it's that's gonna be my new my new saying for it. There's no ands, ifs, or but it's. Uh, yeah, the, the 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 these were the two games that we literally everyone went out to buy CD ROMs because of these games. You know, Rob, we've mentioned the term killer app before, right? Uh, yeah, once or twice. Yeah, so killer app for you know. By, by definition, for those that don't know, that don't know, a killer app is specifically it's a game that or application because there are some examples of of uh, of people buying it. So, gamer application that accelerates sales of a specific platform, computer, phone, things like that. So, Mist and the Seventh Guest are literally the killer apps for CD-ROM drives. You know, every like breath of the wild is the switches, uh, killer app, for instance. Um, actually I think Nintendo games are the switches killer app, huh? Yeah. Mario. I, I mean, Mario games. They, I mean, I think legend of Zelda too. They, they kind of slap with Nintendo. You think so? I, I, Nintendo is pretty damn good with their games in my personal opinion obviously that's just i mean if in you're looking at the actual statistics yes it's probably mario but you know on a personal well, level i think well, it's between the two well since we keep bumping our heads up against it and and we're making good time today uh let's let's for a moment look at killer apps what are let's see Let's see something from your era. I'm sorry. PlayStation 2. What do you think was considered the killer app for the PlayStation 2? Or actually, um, you'd be a PCP, PlayStation 3, wouldn't you? I mean, I started on PlayStation 2. That's when I started gaming. Okay. About, like a lot. That was probably my first console. So what do you I think? Owned. What do you what do you think is the killer app for the PS2? Um Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. Mm-mm. No. Mm-mm. Gran Turismo 3. Wow. I am genuinely shocked at that. 
you can probably guess the the apps for the original Xbox, the killer app for the Xbox. Uh, was it SpongeBob SquarePants, the movie, the game? It so was. Nice. Uh, yeah, no, I'm going to guess that it was uh, Halo. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I was right. They consider Breath of the Wild the killer app for the Switch. Nice. Good call. Some modern ones. Uh, the, 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 the killer app for the PlayStation 5 is Demon's Souls. Oh, okay. Uh, right now, the killer app is for the Game Pass. They consider Flight Sim its killer app. Okay. Yeah. And and Half Life Alex is the killer app for VR headsets because it's now the golden standard for virtual reality games. I mean, Half Life Three was confirmed for like twenty years now, yeah, well, so Alex, they had to make it good. Alex is awesome. Um, PlayStation 4's killer app was Bloodborne, Mario Galaxy for the Wii, Metal Gear Solid Four for the PS3. Um. Yeah. But in any case, these, the seventh guests, along with Mist, they basically drove adoption of CD-ROM drives to personal computers. People, people were going out to buy them, to add them to their computers, and as a result, CD-ROM drives started to get sold with computers instead of floppy drive. Well, we did both for a long, long time. Floppy drives and everything. So, yeah. So this is, this is why computers have CD-ROM drives. I mean, they don't anymore, actually. I was going to say, most computers now don't, if yeah. any do. Yeah. I mean, I'm yeah. sure there are laptops and things that do, but, I mean, most standard desktops I know, anyone that's built one has not had one. Well, I mean, this one I have now is the first one I think I've ever built since I got into you know building computers that doesn't have a CD-ROM drive. Um, I mean, not that I've built as many as you, but I can also say the same. Yeah, it's 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 pretty fun. Well, the seventh guest, there's a there, you know, the, the the obviously its biggest legacy is the adoption of CD-ROM drives. But there is a series, you know, for those of you who want to know, it did spawn a sequel called The Eleventh Hour. Uh, I won't go too much into The Eleventh Hour because I'd like to do an episode on it someday. It has it itself has a very interesting story, uh, basically bankrupted the company that made it. Oh, wow. That's going to be fun. I know. I know. There is also an authorized fan-made other sequel called The 13th Doll, which was kickstarted and then made and released. It was released in 2019. And if you want to play The Seventh Guest, if you want to go out and say, hey, I want to try this game, you can find it in a number of places. The first of which is that... They released a 25th anniversary edition in 2019. It can be found on Steam, and I think Good Old Games has it too. You could you could find it most anywhere. I'm guessing uh, it's on Steam right now for ten dollars. Uh, aside from the game, which was modernized a little bit in terms of like I think they made the resolution a little bit better, and uh, there's a few other little tweaks to it. You can, you can also it comes with the soundtrack. It's got some behind the scenes stuff. Uh, a little bit of cool little fan things here and there. If you don't really don't care about the extras, uh, it it's basically a glorified port of an a mobile remaster, which which uh, I looked up. You can buy it for the Apple App Store if you have an iPhone for five ninety nine. 
Okay. So not bad, not six, bad. Six bucks on your phone or ten bucks on the computer with some extra goodies. Um, yeah, it's um, it's out there. I did not play it this time around. Rob, I watched the same video I sent you, to be honest with you, because uh, as I as I wrote, um, I'll post it on the, the show notes for today which you can find at www.memorycardlane.com. But basically you can watch the whole game from beginning to finish. in what was it? Two hours and 40 minutes. Uh, yeah, about that, which I did. I, I watched the whole thing as I did my research. So, um, yeah, so that's it. That's, that's, uh, which we'll call it. Um, also on our website, you can find old episodes of our podcast, a trip down memory card lane. You can find links to our Discord if you want to come and join us and complain about stuff. You can also find our biographies. You can find a little link to submit your own memories about these games. What else, Rob? I think that's about Uh, it. uh, They can find our social medias. That's right. What's your social media? I'm on twitch.tv. Fat boy with an I rips with a Z. And I am on Twitter as David is wrong. Uh, you know, most of the time we're on Discord nowadays. We get in the habit of streaming on our Discord for whatever reason. That's okay. Yeah, kind of just a bad habit. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get on the platform soon. Well, I will. I don't know. I can't speak for Dave. <laughs> I have the same handle on Twitch. I've just, I never use it, so I don't really advertise it. I, I'm David is wrong on Twitch, too. Well, fair enough, Dave. Well, Rob, do you have anything, any other questions, anything you want to add about this game? Um, you know, I, I don't, it's definitely an interesting story and, uh, I definitely think I'll have to give it another try to watch it in its entirety, but you know, I just couldn't get through it the first time. So, which I mean, definitely seems to be the case for some people. I mean, it's a pretty disjointed story. I'm even going to lie. Like all the modern criticisms of the game are so valid when you look at it in hindsight. I, I'm not even mad at people for being like, I don't understand why this game is so great. I I get all of that, you know. Um, but at the time, it it blew us all away. Like many, uh, many of these games that we talk about week in, week out. This one just happened to be the one that I think really started to get, you know, PC gaming um, nah, and I wouldn't say PC gaming, but we'll just stick with CD-ROM drives, you know? Yeah. Alrighty, well, this is about the time where we reflect on what we've learned. You know, each week we try to teach you something new about the game, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. I've given you a little bit of both today. Uh, as part of our commitment to teach you something, we always... Uh, look back and admit that we learn things too. You know, that's that honestly, that's the best part about doing this weekend week out is that it's not like I remember every little thing about these games. So I'm learning all these stories along with you guys. And that's, that's part of the fun for me and why I like to do this week in week out. But also as part of the process, we like to go around round table and talk about our biggest takeaways each week. So Rob, what did you learn today? I'm trying to think because there was a, uh... There was nothing. You didn't learn anything. No, yeah, no, I knew everything about this. <laughs> um, 
Man, I thought this was a fairly interesting story, but apparently nothing stuck out to you. I mean, I was just going through it again. Because, like, <laughs> there was a lot, you know? There was a lot, yep. I mean, programming at nine years old is pretty insane. And then skipping school to work on programming. And then that's, you know, I mean, I, I don't know very many people who have done that. Yeah. Getting so started you, from such a young age. And so then... you, you've kind of focused on Graham Devine, you know, after Trilobite went through, Graham went to work on uh, Quake 3 Arena. And then, a, and then after that, he ended up working for Bungie and made Halo War. He was one of the one of the designers for Halo, the first Halo RTS, Halo Wars. And then he ended up working. I, I, if I'm trying to, re- to pull this from memory, then he ended up working for Apple. He was in the like about the iPod, I, iPhone two, iPhone three era. He was like the like chief game person for Apple to where like he was the one trying to tell developers how to make games and stuff like that. Uh, and nowadays he runs a company or works with a company, if I'm not mistaken, called Magic Leap, which is trying to basically become the leader in um, AR, augmented reality um, applications. So, Well, yeah. definitely sounds like uh, a person whose career I have had interest in because, you know, Quake 3 Arena I did play and enjoyed, and obviously Bungie is created halo and halo is one of my favorite franchises halo wars specifically i mean i love halo wars it's my style of game and i mean ar is gonna be pretty cool so it's very interesting i mean that i guess that's probably the biggest thing is just starting at such a young age and and ending up creating so many things that even now i'm enjoying so we've created something that you enjoyed when you were young and then created a lot of things that I enjoyed when I was young. It's actually kind of a cool concept now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I'll give you that. I will. What about you? Uh, I learned that there was a hint book in the library, which I probably <laughs> probably knew as a kid, but like getting smacked in the face with adult, uh, as an adult goes, ah, oh, that makes sense. Um, I didn't know this story at all. I, you know, I... I will be honest, this story is very intertwined with the story of its sequel, The Eleventh Hour. They actually started started creating and designing and working on The Eleventh Hour before this was even out, uh, because they were so full of themselves. Hmm. Um, and the whole story is so interesting, because like I said, in the end, it, it just kind of it caused the company to implode on itself. Um, not just these well, games, because... there were it's because they tried so hard. I mean, they did get so far, but oh my end, god! But then nothing didn't even else. Matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was it was interesting. I didn't know that this was originally based off of Clue. I mean, it kind of makes sense when you look at the hotel, you know, the 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 haunted house aspect, and and you can kind of start to pick out things. And I mean, uh, just from watching it, I definitely got. I, I can definitely see the Clue vibes. I mean, well, and know, Clue vibes it makes sense. Up. Clue vibes turn into haunted house vibes, but you can still kind of you still kind of get the vibes of the whole whole thing. So, I mean, don't you think it, it's basically a haunted house if there's a murder afoot? That's true. Yeah. So it was just it was just a it, it was it's an interesting story all altogether. So 
All right. Well, anything you want to add before I take us on out of here? Well, Dave, as always, I want to take one moment to say thank you to all of our listeners. It's wonderful that you're here week after week, or if it's your first week, or if it's your last week. Still happy to have you along for the ride. Yep. Along for the ride. The fun, fun ride that it is, day in and day out with uh, all right. Rob and Dave. That's right. Well, Rob, next week we're going to look at a game that's just plain awful. I ain't going to lie. I, I know that I talk up most games, and you don't hear me say that a lot, but we're definitely going to look at a stinker next week. It's not that's only what I re- like to hear. <laughs> it is not only regarded as the worst Mario game of all time. It's so bad that it frequently finds itself on the list of worst games ever made too. Interesting. I know. So released for the Philips CDI in April of 1994, Hotel Mario is a puzzle video game in which Mario sets off to find Princess Toadstool by going through seven hotels in the Mushroom Kingdom. As part of our discussion, we're going to learn a little bit about the CDI itself, uh, because I think today today's episode is the first time we've ever tripped on it. Next week, we kind of can't get away from it. Uh, So we'll learn about the CDI itself, and we're going to spend time looking at Hotel Mario and just what makes it so freaking awful. Uh, Yeah. So. Yeah, do it. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a good time. Uh, I hope to see you all there. Sounds sounds like a great time talking about bad video games. So join us again next week where we'll offer you full concierge service as we take another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Doobie doop bop bop doo wada bop.